Hi everyone, and welcome again to another educational ECI's MNEX podcast. My name is Ahmed Zahir. I'm a senior clinical fellow of intensive care at Oxford University Hospitals in the United Kingdom and an ECI's MNEX committee member. With all the pleasure, joining me today, Dr. Christopher Lee, who is an intensive care consultant at Bicetre University in France. Dr. Lay is a social media and the digital content representative of the cardiovascular dynamic section at ECICM. Also, he is specialized in hemodynamic monitoring, ARDS, transpulmonary thermodilution, and has published in this domain. Welcome, Dr. Lay. Together, we will be interviewing today two international experts in the cardiovascular hemodynamics. And we will be discussing with them important topics in this domain. And it will be in the form of take-home messages to our listeners from everywhere across the globe. Our first expert is Prof. Xavier Monet, who is a professor of intensive care at the B. Sattre University Hospitals in France. Prof. Monet's main fields of research are acute circulatory failure and its treatment, fluid responsiveness, cardiovascular pathophysiology, hemodynamic monitoring, and heart-lung interactions. Since 2001, he has signed more than 100 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals and is the author of several dictatic reviews and book chapters as well. Prof. Monier, is the head of the cardiovascular dynamics section at ECICM and an associate editor of Annals of Intensive Care Journal. Welcome, Prof. Monier. Our second expert is Prof. Michel Chou, who is a professor of anesthesiology, intensive care, and acute medicine in Linköping University in Sweden. Prof. Shu is one of the deputy editors-in-chief of the European Journal of Anesthesiology. She is one of the main pillars in cardiovascular dynamics section at ECICM. Also, she is an international expert in critical care cardiography and its implications on critically ill patients, hemodynamic monitoring, vasopressors, and has published a lot in this domain. Welcome, Prof. Shu. To start with the questions, Dr. Lay will ask Prof. Monier about CHOP. Dr. Lay, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you, Ahmed. So for everyone who's listening, and I guess our young intensivist, I would have a, a first question for Professor uh, Xavier Monet. Uh, Xavier, um, what will be your advice on how to assess the hemodynamics of a patient with shock in the first hours of management in your ICU. Uh, thank you very much, Christopher. And first of all, uh, uh, thank you very much for the invitation uh, to this podcast. It's really my pleasure and uh, honor to be with you. Um, initial assessment. I think that we should divide the uh, assessment of shock patients in two phases. The first uh, phase, the very initial phase, should be based on arterial pressure assessment and echocardiography. 
I mean that um, initially we must bear in mind all the uh, pieces of information that we may uh, get from arterial pressure, not only the mean arterial pressure that we often consider, but also the diastolic blood pressure, which indicates vasodilation when it's slow, and the arterial pulse pressure, which indicates its throw volume. So it means that they are very uh, early phase. Uh, this, uh, these different blood pressure values are very informative for the diagnosis. For instance, a low diastolic pressure and a normal pulse pressure indicates rather septic shock, while a cardiogenic hypovolemic shock is, has a, a high diastolic pressure and a low pulse pressure. So it's very important for the diagnosis. The central venous pressure, when it can be measured, should be measured also for diagnostic issues, because of course the diagnosis will not be the same if the CVP is zero, which means that it's normal, or if it's 20 millimeters of mercury. And finally, regarding this initial phase, echocardiography is absolutely required because you will not treat your patient in the same way if you know that the LV ejection fraction is 20% or if you know that it's normal. Then after this very initial phase of hemodynamic monitoring, it all depends on the severity of the patient. And if the patient does not improve with the initial treatment, with volume expansion, with uh, low doses of uh, norepinephrine, then we may think about a more advanced monitoring, which could be done with uh, some sophisticated devices or with echocardiography, but at a later phase. In the patients that will improve very rapidly, of course, we just need blood pressure, but in the other ones, we must uh, uh, look further and, and try to see more in the patient. So my, my key message would be blood pressure with all the values, CVP when possible, echography at the initial phase, and then it depends on the patient's severity. Thank you, Xavier. You mentioned the diastolic arterial pressure. Is there a value that you can use and uh, you can say it's rather a septic shock uh, rather than a cardiogenic or hypovolemic shock? Uh, it's a very good question. I think that um, for sure, when the diastolic blood pressure is below 40 millimeters of mercury, one must say it is low. Uh, it might be due, of course, to severe aortic regurgitation, but otherwise it indicates vasodilation. Below 40, you're sure that the patient has arterial vasodilation. By the way, it is much better than the calculated systemic vascular resistance that people often use. And by the way, also, it may um, promote vasopressors administration. When DAP is below 40, it is an indication for starting norepinephrine. Okay, thank you. Uh, regarding the blood uh, level of lactate, uh, it is used uh, to define the septic shock. Uh, how do you use it uh, only for the diagnosis or do you use it afterwards? It's a very good question because definitely lactate is likely one of the most important variables, biological variables, if not the most important that we have in our shock patients, especially during sepsis. Um, how do I use it? Lactate is a very sensitive marker of anaerobic metabolism, very sensitive. 
And by the way, even um, um, slightly elevated values are informative and are related to poor prognosis. But two problems with lactate. The first is that there are some false positives, and you know them, liver failure, renal failure, some drugs, myelitis, gut ischemia, seizures, etc. And the second problem is the delay in its changes. When you change, uh, for instance, when you give dibutamine to a patient, before lactate decreases, it takes hours. So these are the two limitations. But when it's high, it means that something is wrong, definitely. So it's important for initial assessment, for diagnosing shock, and also for following the treatment's effect, beside this limitation of delaying its changes. Okay, thank you. So you mentioned that we can have some false positive uh, as in uh, liver failure uh, uh, when you use uh, adrenaline, for instance. In that case, is there any other indices that uh, you can use? No, it is, again, it's a very good point. Uh, always bear in mind that it's not only lactate to assess tissue hypoxia. By the way, lactate is more a marker of the anaerobic metabolism than of tissue hypoxia and Professor de Backer during, uh, during our hemodynamic course insisted a lot on that and he was right, of course. Um, besides, lactate, besides lactate, we have SpO2 or SCBO2, you don't use a PA catheter, which is also very, very informative. When the SpO2 is low in the shock patients, it means that you should try to do something. Increase cardiac output, restore hemoglobin, so low SpO2 values are very informative. And also the PCO2 derived indices, the PCO2 gap or indices derived from the PCO2 gap also help assess tissue hypoxia with a lower level of evidence because we have less studies on PCO2 derived indices, but many advantages as for instance, they have less false positives and the change much more rapidly than lactate. So the key message here is that we should assess all variables together and it's not possible to interpret SpO2 without lactate and lactate without PCO2 derived indices. Thank you. Uh, regarding the PCO2 gap, what is the trigger level of PCO2 gap that you use? Oh, the PCO2, when PCO2 gap is above, is above 1.6, uh, I'm sorry, about six millimeters of mercury, about six millimeters of mercury. When the PCO2 gap is above six millimeters of mercury, it means that cardiac output is too low. In fact, cardiac output is too low to, to carry CO2 toward the lungs. So the, the cutoff is six. Thank you. So uh, it seems that we already have uh, lots of indices, uh, either from the arterial pressure or uh, from blood biology to assess uh, the hemodynamics of the patients. But to go further, uh, you mentioned that uh, we can use echocardiography. Ahmed, maybe you yes. have some questions? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Lee and Dr. Kokmani for the informative answer. Prof. Shul. Um, Prof. Muni has touched base and highlighted the importance of um, 
critical care echocardiography and the initial assessment of shock. As a resident, or as a young intensivist, when can we use echocardiography in the assessment of shock? And is there any difference in the indices or what type of indices are we looking for? And what can we do with echocardiography as a tool? Well, thank you very much for that question, Ahmed. It's certainly very, very relevant. I do agree with Professor Monet that there are two phases in which you can use echocardiography to assess shock. So for the very, very early phase, in a patient with undifferentiated shock, echocardiography is a class one indication for use. So if you're called up at three o'clock in the morning to the wards or to the emergency department, a patient is semi-conscious, uh, has a low blood pressure, is mottled, is cold, and you don't know what's going on, what you want to do is to use your echocardiography for a diagnostic purpose. So not for a monitoring purpose, diagnostic. Try and rule out the most important things that you will need to intervene with very, very quickly. So the four different types of shock, obstructive shock, for example, is it a large pulmonary embolus? Is it a cardiac tamponade that you will need to drain very quickly? Is it a cardiogenic shock? Or is it a hypovolemic shock? Could the patient be having ongoing losses or bleeding? And finally, is it a distributive shock? Is this patient septic or is this patient in anaphylactic shock? So those are the, the, the different causes of shock that echocardiography is very useful for in the first initial evaluation. And then, of course, later on, you might use echocardiography as a monitoring tool to monitor the effects of your intervention. So, for example, if you bring the patient down to ICU and you intubate the patient, patient is on positive pressure ventilation, well, what effect does that have on hemodynamics? Are you causing an acute core pulmonale by ventilating the patient and causing a right ventricular or, or relative right ventricular uh, outflow obstruction? You may have begun the patient on some inotropes. You'd want to put your probe on to see what the uh, contractility is like. You may have uh, started some inotropes or, or vasopressors rather, and then you might want to see whether or not the patient is responding to that. So in that second phase, echocardiography is very useful to monitor the effects of intervention. Thank you, Prof. Shaw. If you, would you mind if you can touch base about that of the fundamental use of echocardiography in fluid responsiveness? Right, so echocardiography is just one of many tools that you can use to assess uh, fluid responsiveness. And this uh, was something that we really stressed during the uh, hemodynamic masterclass. So echocardiography is not a standalone tool. You need to integrate everything. Look at your blood pressure, as Professor Monet um, explained. Look at your pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation. Look at the, the um, mottling, lactate, and all of those PCO2-derived indices. However, um, echocardiography is also very useful if you want to, for example, monitor whether or not cardiac output has increased to uh, passive leg raising maneuver. This is very easy to do. Um, 
what you would need is to uh, insulate the left ventricular outflow tract or the aorta um, for the left ventricular outflow tract. And this is, I, I wouldn't recommend this in the acute situation because then you'd have to do a tracing of the velocity time integral, but you could certainly use your continuous wave Doppler, insulate the whole aorta, and then look at the Vmax, the maximum velocity, and look for changes in response to a passive leg raising maneuver. So not just the respiratory changes, but changes in response to passive leg raising or a fluid bolus. Thank you so much for the informative answer. And this will take us to another phase, which is starting to intervene with our, with our, with our critically unwell patients by starting some fluids. I think Dr. Lee have some questions for Prof. Mune for that. Yes, uh, speaking about uh, fluid responsiveness, I have a, a very practical question for you, uh, Professor Monet, that we all experience, I think, especially during night shift in the middle of the night. Uh, in case of acute circulatory failure and low blood pressure, uh, whether in the initial phase or even later in the management of the patient, uh, fluid administration is very often considered as a first-line therapy. What would you say to the young intensivist about the, this behavior? Uh, sure, it is based on, on the, the initial therapy in most cases of shock, perhaps not in cardiogenic shock with a pulmonary edema, but in all the other cases, we start by giving fluids, and it is definitely indicated. I think, again, there are different steps. Initially, the very initial resuscitation should be based on a rapid infusion of fluid especially in septic shock. I mean that at that time, at the very early phase, all the patients will respond to fluid, will be fluid responders, which means that all of them will increase their cardiac output after a fluid load of uh, fluid bolus of uh, uh, two, 500 milliliters of fluid. So at that initial phase, we should give fluid without predicting fluid responsiveness. But afterwards, much less patients are fluid responsive. It's been very well demonstrated by the Andromeda shock study. Afterwards, after the first fluid resuscitation, a large uh, proportion of patients do not respond to fluid infusion. And as we do not want to infuse fluid in patients that do not need fluid, we assess preload responsiveness, as you said. It's exactly at that phase, and especially in septic shock, that we need to assess preload responsiveness with the goal of not giving fluid to fluid and responsive patients. Thank you, Xavier. And how, how could you assess uh, the fluid responsiveness? Oh, uh, what's good, as you know, is that today we have different uh, if not several tests and indices to do so, some that use the ventilator, some that don't. I think that we are left with, uh, let's say, four tests to, to summarize rapidly. The first is a passive leg raising, very well established, even in non-ventilated patients, not very easy to perform, and Michel spoke about it. We have the mini fluid challenge, so just give uh, 150 milliliters of uh, fluid and look at the response. 
that for this you need a, a very rapid infusion and a very precise measurement of cardiac output because you're looking for small changes in cardiac output. Third, we have the tidal volume challenge, much less established for the moment, but you just, uh, if the patient is ventilated with a tidal volume at six, you increase it from six to eight for a minute, and you look at the change in pulse pressure variation. You know that there are many false negatives due to the low tidal volume, but when you increase tidal volume, and if PPV increases, then it may mean that the patient is preload responsive, very easy to perform, but again, not that well established. And the fourth test, which I think is my preferred one in ventilated patients, is the end expiratory occlusion test. You stop ventilation for 15 seconds, the, the time is important, at uh, end expiration, just like for measuring the intrinsic peak, and you look at an increase in cardiac output. And if cardiac output increases by more than 5%, it's very likely the patient is preload responsive. It's been quite well established. So, mini fluid challenge, passive leg raising, tidal volume challenge, and the end expiratory occlusion test are the most reliable uh, ways to assess preload responsiveness today. So, increases uh, during uh, this test can predict the fluid responsiveness. But for the four tests that you talked about, which uh, value of increases of cardiac output do you use uh, in daily practice? Um, so, you're right, thresholds are important to consider, but there is no magic value, of course. Um, and, and of course, the, the further the patient from the thresholds, the more likely he or she is to be uh, preload responsive or unresponsive. So be careful with when considering this percentages. Nevertheless, the positive passive leg raising test means an increase in cardiac index by more than 10%. And expiratory occlusion test, 5%. Mini fluid challenge likely 5%, but it's less well established. And the increase in PPV during the tidal volume challenge I spoke about, the threshold is slightly variating from one study to another, but a 3% in absolute value, a 3% increase in PPV may indicate preload responsive. The threshold is very well established for passive leg raising and that and expiratory occlusion test because we have many studies, less for the other ones. Thank you. Maybe uh, when we are near the thresholds, can we associate uh, different tests uh, to better assess the hemodynamics? Yeah, yes, it's a very relevant remark, you're right. It's the advantage of having several tests and indices. And so when in patients where we precisely want to know fluid responsiveness, I mean very severe patients, uh, ARDS patients with shock, we do not want to give 500 mls um, more, then we may combine them. But by the way, you know, there are some patients that are, if I may say, naturally um, not between fluid responsiveness and unresponsiveness. I mean that preload responsiveness is a continuous state, you know, the relationship is not yes or no. So we must admit that there are some patients that are slightly preload responsive. And then for deciding to give fluid or not, we should consider the risk of 
fluid infusion, not only the need for fluid infusion, but also the risk. And it's a two-step assessment. First, is my patient preload responsive? But if yes, I should not give fluid immediately. I should ask myself, is fluid infusion not too risky? Is, not, is CVP not too elevated? Is uh, the PF ratio not too low? Uh, isn't the lung water and lung permeability elevated if I use the transpulmonary thermal lotion devices, etc.? So you see, not only preload responsiveness and not only magic values for the threshold. Thank you for all these informations. So now that uh, I have access, uh, try to predict the fluid responsiveness. In case my patient is preload unresponsive. So I must not give fluids. And I guess I can give other uh, treatments and I have in my uh, uh, the vasopressors. Ahmed? Yeah. Thank I, you, Dr. Lee. Yeah. That's a very good, that's a very hot topic. I think it's, it will be a debatable topic. So, and I would say from a, from a catecholamine perspective, Prof. Schuh, so for example, if we're having a patient who's not a volume responsive, and we need to start vasopressors. Which is your first choice? Right, so that's that's an extremely good question, Ahmed. So noradrenaline is still the first choice vasopressor recommended by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Uh, for, for, for this particular group of patients. And obviously for other groups of patients as well, it is still, uh, even for cardiogenic shock, still the uh, first vasopressor of choice. Now, having said that, however, I would want to issue a note of caution. All catecholamines are associated with adverse effects. Now, I don't mean that you shouldn't use catecholamines. What I mean is that you need to assess the risk and benefit of it, as, as Xavier just said. Now, noradrenaline is a very effective um, vasopressor. However, there are some patients who will stop responding to norepinephrine or noradrenaline at, at some stage, or they might not respond at all. And in those situations, you might want to add on a second vasopressor, such as vasopressin, which is a non-catecholamine uh, agent. Vasopressin uh, does not seem to have more adverse effects than noradrenaline. It does increase blood pressure. And I guess the most important reason for using vasopressin would be as a catecholamine sparing agent. I think data is becoming clearer and clearer now. We don't have any definitive trials, but we are moving towards an era where you want to probably give less fluids after an adequate risk benefit um, consideration because over, um, over-resuscitation with fluids is clearly del deleterious. And in that uh, context, you may want to consider going in a little bit earlier with noradrenaline than has traditionally been recommended. Thank you. So going back again to noradrenaline, when do you actually, do you have a cutoff value or a cutoff clinical state where you can start vasopressors on patients? That's a million dollar question, Ahmed. Uh, there is no definitive trial to say when you uh, should or shouldn't start vasopressin. But I think that the general consensus amongst uh, most clinicians is when you're up about 
to about 0.3 micrograms per kilo per minute of noradrenaline, then you should start thinking about vasopressin. So moving from vasopressors to inotropic agents, when do we need to start inotropic agents? And do you have a preference in terms of inotropic agents? Yeah, that's uh, also a really, really good question. Now, one, what you shouldn't use inotropes for is to increase blood pressure. So inotropes are given for the specific reason to increase cardiac contractility. So inotropes are not given just to increase the mean arterial pressure. In fact, the mean arterial pressure may actually even fall um, when you start infusion of some inotropes. So I just want to get that out of the way. Inotropes only given to increase cardiac contractility. Um, when do you start inotropes? Well, if I have a patient in front of me who was in shock, who hasn't responded to fluids or vasopressors and has a manifest um, cardiac hypocontractility on, on echocardiography, for example, and this is one of the reasons why I like to use echocardiography, then I would start a, a low-dose infusion of dobutamine. And dobutamine, despite all of its um, difficulties and caveats, it's still uh, the number one inotrope that is recommended, for example, for the um, septic patient, as well as for the patient with cardiogenic shock. Now, this is not a carte blanche to use dobutamine, of course. Uh, all catecholamine agents are associated with important adverse effects. So in all of those guidelines, uh, they do recommend that dobutamine be used only after a very careful risk and benefit consideration. What are your thoughts about adrenaline? Well, um, in terms of uh, patients with septic shock, uh, there is uh, equipoise uh, with regard to the use of adrenaline as opposed to dobutamine. However, amongst patients with cardiogenic shock, there was a very uh, recent um, individual data, uh, patient data meta-analysis that showed that the use of adrenaline amongst patients with cardiogenic shock was associated with a four to five-fold increased risk of mortality, if I remember correctly. So Thank not you. adrenaline in cardiogenic shock. Okay. Can you give us as a brief overview or a brief introduction for any new anotropic agents? Well, I guess the two most important and talked about non-catecholamine agents are milrinone and um, levosimendan. Well, with regard, and, and there, are, there are some compelling reasons to, to use non-catecholamine agents. With regard to septic shock, we know that the beta adrenergic receptors are downregulated. There may be a ceiling effect to uh, some, of, uh, some of these drugs. And also because of the adverse effects, it may increase myocardial oxygen consumption, et cetera. So milrinone is uh, an interesting drug. Um, it can be given by the in, in intravenous or inhaled route, inhaled routes, uh, mainly for right ventricular dysfunction, although this is by no means evidence-based. Um, however, there are really too few studies to make any robust conclusions about the use of milrinone for um, either cardiogenic or uh, septic shock. 
uh, I can tell you that there was a recent study, the Doremi study, that tested the um, the equivalency or the the superiority superiority rather of milrinone versus dobutamine. And if I remember correctly, there was a composite of um, primary outcome measures, um, including. I'm not completely sure on this, but it could be a myocardial infarction, hospital deaths, renal replacement therapy, amongst others. And there was no difference between milrinone uh, or dobutamine. So uh, levosimendan is an interesting, uh, rather novel drug. It's a calcium synthesizer calcium synthesizer and um, does not increase uh, myocardial oxygen consumption. So the evidence for the use of levosimendan is actually not very strong. For septic patients, in fact, the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines no longer recommends this. So it is a suggestion against the use of levosimendan. And I guess the bulk of that evidence comes from the LEOPARDS trial, a well-conducted trial, but it does have some caveats. Um, and that trial showed that levosimendan was not beneficial when compared to uh, dobutamine amongst patients with septic shock. Um, and there was even a suggestion of harm. For cardiogenic shock, none of the trials or none of the major newer trials support the use of levosimendan for cardiogenic shock or low cardiac output syndrome. So not even in cardiogenic shock is levosimendan uh, recommended. Having said that, however, there may be niche indications for levosimendan. For example, amongst patients where you suspect beta blocker toxicity or where you suspect that there is an adrenergic cardiomyopathy such as uh, in the Takotsubo syndrome. So that would be the niche indications for levosimendan, but that those are just expert indications, expert opinion-based indications uh, that is not really based on any uh, solid evidence. Thank you, Prof. Shu, for this informative answer. Uh, Professor Chu, I do have a, a question. As uh, for the norepinephrine associated with vasopressin, can you associate dobutamine uh, with another inotropic treatment? Uh, yes, absolutely. So dobutamine can be um, used in conjunction with noradrenaline, of course, and, and we quite often use this because we know that do, dobutamine is also a vasodilator, so you cannot expect um, the mean arterial pressure to increase just because you've increased uh, cardiac contractility. So quite often we co-infuse noradrenaline and dobutamine just the same way as we co-infuse levosimendan and noradrenaline for, for many patients. Um, the caveat with that is that then you will have a massive catecholamine surge, both from the dobutamine and from the noradrenaline, although they do act on a slightly different receptors and that is uh, dose dependent. So um, for septic patients, noradrenaline and dobutamine is still recommended as the first line agents. Thank you, Prof. Shaw, for your for this informative answer. And just to wrap up and just give take-home messages, Prof. Monier, in terms of shock assessment and how to use echocardiography and principles of fluid management and vasopressor and critical and inotropic support. What are your take-home messages for our intensivists who are listening to this podcast? So I would say. Um... 
initial assessment, including uh, arterial pressure with all the uh, values, the numbers of blood pressure and CVP, do not miss CVP, echocardiography or initial assessment, and then it depends on patient severity. Regarding fluid therapy, initially give fluid, but rapidly after this initial uh, fluid infusion, assess fluid responsiveness. I told you that I think that passive leg raising and expiratory occlusion test, mini fluid challenge and tidal volume challenge uh, are sufficiently reliable for this purpose. And uh, that's it regarding my messages, I think. And the other ones were the messages from Professor Chu. The floor is yours, <laughs> Professor Chu. Thank you. So to wrap up, uh, in terms of echocardiography, a two-step process in the initial evaluation of undifferentiated shock, you want to exclude the big reasons for shock and the things that you need to treat immediately. So distributive shock, hypovolemia, obstructive shock, such as pulmonary embolus, tamponade, as well as cardiogenic shock shock, the four reasons. And the second step is to monitor the effects of the intervention. So the effects of positive pressure ventilation, inotropes, vasopressors, and fluids. Now, in terms of vasopressors, uh, noradrenaline is still the recommended vasopressor for the treatment of cardiogenic as well as septic shock. But remember that it has very real risks. Um, as an add-on and as a catecholamine sparing agent, you may use vaso uh, vasopressin. And this is um, there is no recommendation as to when you should start it, but a general consensus is about um, uh, is to start vasopressin when you are reaching noradrenaline doses of about 0 0.3, 0 0.4 mics per kilo per minute. In terms of uh, inotropes, dobutamine is still the class um, is still the recommended drug for both septic and um, cardiogenic shock, but remember all catecholamines, all catecholamine inotropic drugs have very serious um, adverse reactions, side effects. So think about it before you start your next infusion of dobutamine. Levosimendan is not longer suggested for the treatment of septic shock. There is not enough treatment um, evidence for the use of mildrenone and for a cardiogenic shock. Uh, it is recommended not, not to use adrenaline. There are niche indications for the use of levosimendan that are not evidence-based, and these are, uh, for example, during beta blocker toxicity and perhaps, perhaps in septic cardiomyopathy. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Prof. Mani. Dr. Lee, would you like to add anything before we finish our educational podcast? Yes, thank you, Professor Mane. Thank you, Professor Chu, and thank you, Ahmed, uh, for this really good interview. Uh, for all those uh, who are interested in hemodynamics, uh, they can join us in the EZICM cardiovascular dynamics section. I think there is really good education uh, in it, and especially uh, master classes that uh, are held. Uh, maybe you can talk about it a little bit, uh, Professor Mane. Yes, we have uh, twice a year, we have uh, some hemodynamics, hemodynamic uh, masterclasses, three-day uh, masterclasses in Zoom, very interactive, very well evaluated, and uh, that uh, Professor Shu and myself uh, are very pleased uh, to share, and so all of you are very welcome. 
to these masterclasses to develop all these uh, topics in more detail. Thank you very much, uh, Ahmed and uh, Christopher, for your very nice invitation. Thank you. Thank you, Thank everyone. You. Thank you, everyone, for the contribution to this educational ACICM Next podcast. Looking forward for another educational ACICM Next podcast. And thank you, everyone, and have a nice day.